0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been with us this month, you know that we have been in a series called The Christmas Carols, where we have been looking to know the hope of Christmas past, present, and future. The hope that we sing about in our favorite Christmas carols. And we've been walking through those on my blog and daily devotionals, but also in our Sunday services. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Joy to the World. Last week, we looked at O Come All Ye Faithful. And today, we're going to be looking at that great song, the song we just sang, What Child Is This? But before we look at that song and its meaning together, uh, I want to just take you back to my days in seminary and tell you about an experience I had while I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. See, when I was a student, uh, they were beginning to try to help us really work well inside of teams and in community. Now, you all can be the judge on how effective their training was, but that was the desire. And so part of the way they accomplished that was, to give us some assignments that had to be completed with a group. And so when I took the class on the end times, what the Bible teaches about the end of the world, um, I was placed on a team and given the task as a team to teach the class about the different interpretations about how the world would end. So as our team got together and we tried to decide how we were going to teach, we didn't want to just do the standard lecture. That would be too basic. We decided that we were going to host the game show Jeopardy! End Times Edition. And so we uh, set this up, we had the blue screen, we had the music playing, um, and we invited some contestants to come forward. But at the appropriate time, I stepped up as Alex Trebek. And so I said to our class, I said, good evening class, uh, today you are welcome to, Al- uh, to uh, Jeopardy! I'm your host, Alex Trebek. Now when I said that, everybody in the class chuckled, um, except one person, The professor. And when our presentation was done, and we had walked through the different interpretations of the end of the world, um, we ended class, and everybody laughed and and understood the context of Alex Trebek. I wasn't really Alex Trebek. I just was acting as the host of Jeopardy! in that skit. Everybody understood that except the professor. I don't think he watched as much afternoon television as the rest of us. He did not know who Alex Trebek was. And so lacking context, guess who he thought Alex was? Me. And for the rest of that semester, every time I would see him in class and around campus, he would call me Alex. <laughs> and as a class, we, just, we were in on the joke, but nobody wanted to be the one that, that set him off, right? I mean, this is one of the most brilliant men in the world. He thinks that I'm Alex Trebek. That's awesome. We just went with it for the rest of the semester. I'm not certain what Alex got in that class, but I got a B. Um, But but here's the thing. Names and titles require some context to make sense of them, don't they? I mean, without some kind of a context, a name or a title, we can misunderstand. He thought I was Alex Trebek because he lacked the necessary context of game shows to be able to correctly understand what I was saying. And... Inside of Christianity, we run the temptation of also missing names and titles because we lack context. The world of the Bible, 2,000 years ago. And so there are certain phrases, certain titles, certain names that don't mean to us everything that they should. And one of those names or titles that is important for us to grasp is the title of Christ. What does that word actually mean? You know, when we hear that word, we understand that it's important, right? I mean, think about how important it is. When we think about the religion that we are a part of, we call it Christianity, right? When we think about the holiday that we're celebrating right now, it's Christmas, Christ Mass. It's a very important term, but what does it really mean? Lacking context, when we see it following the name Jesus, we might think that it is Jesus' last name. But we would be mistaken if we thought that. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a very important title inside of Scripture. We're going to see what that title means today. Now, it's an important title in Scripture. It's an important title for our faith. But it's also an important word inside of the song, What Child Is This? as it fills the chorus of that song. So what I want to do this morning is I want to read for us the words of the song we just sang, What Child Is This?, And then I want us to back up and look at the anchor of that song and that word Christ to see a couple of things that will be significant, both in what it means and what it means for us today. So let me read the words of this song. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste. Haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where oxen ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Now friends, this song, this beautiful song, really sets up as a question and answer. The verses ask a question. What child is this? What child is this that we we look at inside of the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2? Who is this baby that Mary was holding? It's It's a question. And then the answer comes back to that question. This, this is Christ the King. This morning, we're going to look at that answer to the question of who Jesus is by understanding more of what that phrase, Christ, means. First thing that we need to do today is we need to remember that this is Christ the King. Now, what does that word Christ mean? I've hinted at it throughout. I've mentioned that it's a title, but what does the New Testament tell us about what that word means? Well, the word Christ is a Greek Translation or of a, a Hebrew idea that was the anointed one, the promised one. It's a word in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is used 45 times. To talk about one who was anointed by God, it it is used of priests, it is used of different kings, it is used of different people who had a role in leading the nation of Israel who God had His special hand upon. Forty-five different times in our Old Testament, it is used of different people, the anointed one, the Christ. But something interesting happens between the Old and the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the word was used to describe a number of different people who were used of God at different times to provide some leadership to the nation of Israel, by the time the New Testament comes around, inside of Jewish culture, that word, Christ, had become a summary for all of the passages inside of the Old Testament that talked about the promises of God being fulfilled in one who would come in the future. In other words, throughout our Old Testament, from beginning to end, there are a number of promises of things that God would do, that he would provide salvation, that he would provide security, that he would provide a future and a hope, all of these things that God had promised inside of the Old Testament. By the time Jesus was born, the Jewish people had taken all of those things that were mentioned and they had consolidated them around one person, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that they were longing for, the one that they were waiting for, the anointed one, the promised one of God who was to come. Now, given that context, when we look at what happens inside of our New Testament, we see an explosion of the use of the term Christ. Over 500 times the word is used inside of our New Testament. But rather than being applied to a number of different people, By this point, it is formalized into a title for one very specific person, and that is Jesus. We see that inside of the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, they both begin talking about Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Matthew is saying is this Book that he's getting ready to write, the Gospel of Matthew, is a summary of what we know about the Promised One of God from the Old Testament who came in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Promised One, the Anointed One. Mark begins his Gospel the same way. He says, This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the One that the Old Testament pointed to. That was what Mark said. In Luke's Gospel, it is a word that is used when the angels show up in the sky and they announce Jesus at his birth. Luke chapter two and verse 11, it says, the angels say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, Jesus, the one who is born, the one over there in the manger, he is the promised one of God that the Old Testament spoke about. This is a title that was a very important title reserved for this one, and and we see the significance of that in Matthew chapter 16. If you were with us in the fall, you know that we, we looked at Matthew 16 together, and Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are what? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter making a declaration that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament pointed to and promised was a significant thing. But here's what's also interesting. Jesus then tells Peter, he says, hey, don't tell anybody else right now that I'm the Christ. Why? because it was such a prevalent term and people had so many different expectations about what it would mean that it might lead to a disruption in the timing and the plan of God. And so Jesus said, Peter, for now, let's keep it between us. It's an important title, that word, the Christ. It's interesting, Jesus didn't say to Peter, don't be engaged in ministry, don't point people to me. He says, don't use that word around me just yet. It was an important term not only was it an important term but it was also a term that was widely used in Jesus' day think about the incident when the magi come to visit Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 the the, the wise men they show up and they say in verse 2 of of Matthew 2 they they ask Herod and his Party. they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. In other words, when somebody was talking about a special king not named Herod, Herod knew exactly who they were talking about the promised one of God, the Christ of the Old Testament. The gospel account, the New Testament is quite clear that Jesus was that promised one. Now, here's the thing. What does it mean to say that Jesus was the promised one of God? In what way was he the promised one? Well, there's many things we could look at throughout the Old Testament, but I want to look at three representatives of things that Jesus was promised to fulfill. So when we talk about Jesus being the Christ, we're talking about Him being the one that fulfills these promises. One of those promises is that Jesus was the promised seed, the promised seed. Now, we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You'll know that Genesis is the book of the beginnings, it is where everything is created and inside of this creation there's a garden of Eden and in that garden lived Adam and Eve and they lived in perfect fellowship with God until Satan comes along and tempts them and they sin. And after they sin, consequences begin to come into the world, a disruption of their fellowship with God, feelings of, of shame feelings of of challenge between each other, pain in childbirth, difficulty in work. All of those things were a product of the fall. But in the midst of that, God shows up and speaks to both Adam and Eve, but He also speaks to Satan. And in Genesis 3, verse 15... God speaks to Satan and says this. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, when, when sin disrupts the fellowship that God had created, God correctly sees Satan as a problem, and he makes a promise that one day the head of Satan will be crushed. But who will crush the head of Satan? The offspring or the seed of the woman. Well, who is that? Ultimately, that would be Jesus Christ, born of a woman who would crush the head of Satan. This is a a promise from Genesis chapter 3 that talks about Jesus or the Messiah, the Christ, one day taking out Satan and his influence in the world. The Jewish people were were expecting a promised one to come who would provide that. But what else were they hoping for? Not only were they hoping for a promised seed, but they also were hoping for a promised sovereign, one who would come and would establish a kingdom that would know no end. The anchor for this idea is, is found in what God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. At this time, God speaks to David and he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, David, one of your descendants will have a rule in a kingdom that will know no end. Well, who was he talking about? Certainly none of David's Offspring up to the point of Christ, all of their kingdoms had a rise and a fall. There is no throne there right now in Jerusalem. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promise that one day the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, the promised one of God, the Christ, would show up and would set up a kingdom and would reign from Jerusalem in a reign that would know no end. We look forward to this at the second coming of Christ, something we looked at two weeks ago as we looked at Psalm 98. When we talk about Jesus being the Christ, the promised one of God, we're, we're talking about the fulfillment of the seed. We're talking about the fulfillment of the sovereign rule. We're also talking about the promised Savior, the one who would come and would provide a way for us to be blessed by God, not just temporarily but eternally, to have our sins forgiven, to be made right in our relationship with him again. This is a promise that was given of of God all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram. God shows up to Abram and he says to him in chapter 12 verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And listen to what he says in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through a descendant of Abraham would come a path of blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Friends, there was a a promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. It was through Jesus and His work that all the peoples of the earth, including you and I, might find a spiritual blessing. And that blessing would include the forgiveness of our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 6 summarizes the spiritual blessing that the promised one, the Christ, would bring when he says in verse 4, "'Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities.'" Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, there was a, a promise made. Isaiah wrote those words hundreds of years before Jesus was born. There was an expectation that one would come upon whom God would lay the iniquity of us all so that we might be forgiven. This is what Jesus did when he died on the cross for us. He took the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. By his wounds, we would be healed. See, there was a a desire, a hope that Israel had based on their Old Testament that one day one would come who would be the promised seed to take out Satan, who would be the promised sovereign to provide righteous rule on the earth, and who, who would be the promised Savior would provide spiritual forgiveness and restoration in our relationship with God. Well, who was this? This was in Jesus. He was the Christ, the promised one of God. No wonder when Jesus, after His resurrection, went for a walk with some of His followers, was able to take the Old Testament and open it and walk them through. And it says, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets," He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think he was probably flipping through his Bible just as we just did and said, Guess what? The one who was promised, that's me. Friends, when we gather at Christmas time and we sing, This, this is Christ the King, you know what we're saying? Jesus, Jesus, He is the promised one of God. He's the one that God has spoken of from the very beginning, who has come to crush Satan. All of the the addiction and the abuse and the struggle that you experience as someone who lives inside of this world, Jesus came to take that out. He is Christ, the promised one. All of the corruption that exists inside of the world. You know, as Americans, we love to complain about the government around us, don't we? I mean, if you don't believe me, just check social media, right? We, we love to complain about but think about how well we have it compared to so many other governments inside the world. There's so much corruption, so much difficulty that is happening all over the planet right now. And when we feel that frustration and, and the sense of despair, guess what? We can have a hope. Because there's a promised one who is coming to bring righteous rule upon the earth. When we sing this, this is Christ the King. Jesus, Jesus, he's the one who will provide that. When we think about our sin and the weight of our sin and the stain of our sin that lies around us. When we sing this, this is Christ the King. This, this is the one upon whom God laid my sin so that I might be forgiven and free. Friends, all of that is wrapped up in that little word, not his last name, but the Christ, the promised one of God. This is Christ, the King. But how do we respond? What do we do with that? If that is who Jesus is, if that's the hope that we have, what, what do we do with that? Well, the song gives us an application. How does the, the chorus end? Haste haste to bring him laud. Now, this song was written in Scotland a number of years ago. And so those words may be confusing for us. We had a conversation as a family about what those words mean. And I I got a look from Josh towards me as we talked about it. That was kind of like, well, dad, you're the preacher you figured out, right? Um, So (laughs) what, what do those words mean? What do those words mean? Haste, haste. Quickly, quickly. Not let's put this off to the new year, but if Jesus is the Christ, then quickly we should respond to Him. We should prioritize Him. Quickly, quickly, we should bring Him laud. Now what does laud mean? It means to praise or to glory, to worship, to honor. The song says, this is Christ the King, so let us quickly come and worship Him. Now inside of the account of Christmas, what examples do we have of people quickly coming to to worship Jesus? Well, there's at least two. There's the shepherds and then there's the magi. I want to focus quickly for us on the response of the magi as an example for what it looks like for you and I to quickly come and laud Christ the King. We see this inside of Matthew chapter 2, and I read some of these verses for us earlier, but just to remind us, Matthew 2 verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The Magi are people who, who came quickly, to worship Jesus. Now, in their response, what can we learn about responding to Christ? I think we can see at least three things from their experience. The first thing that we can see is that they responded to the revelation. They recognized what was happening. These magi were were stargazers. They were professional astrologers. They lived in a, in a faraway land, uh, Iraq and Iran, modern-day Iraq and Iran, and they, they spent their time looking at the sky. Now, what's interesting is the passage, the verses we just read tell us that when they saw a special new star appear in the sky, they, they immediately had a category for that new star as having something to do with the Christ, the Messiah, Now, how is it that pagan people, non-Jewish people, living in modern-day Iraq and Iran, how is it that, that they would see a star and would associate it with a king in Israel? Well, we don't know for sure. But it is possible for us to create a plausible scenario for how they knew. Because the only other time in the scripture where we we hear the Magi referenced is in the book of Daniel. You see, when Daniel and his friends, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were a part of this exile in Babylon, they found favor with the leadership there. And as they found favor, they were given responsibility. And one of the responsibilities that Daniel had was to lead this group of people called the Magi. And so as Daniel, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, would have had leadership among the Magi, and he would watch them looking at the stars, it is not far-fetched for us to imagine them saying, one day there will be a new star. Because in the book of Numbers, there was a prophecy about a star rising, and the Jewish people associated that with the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Christ. They created a category. They presented revelation. They said, one day you will see this, and this is what that will mean. That would have been written down or passed as an oral tradition hundreds of years until when those magi look in the sky and they see that star, they check their records and they say this star is connected to the person of Christ. They they recognize the revelation that God sent. First thing we see that they did. But after they recognized that revelation, they didn't just go, "Well, that's interesting," and go about their lives. No, they they reoriented their lives. They reoriented their life. They they began to do things differently. They they set out on a journey to go and to explore this star. Now, now think about this. They were in Iraq and Iran. That's that's a pretty significant journey that would have taken a number of months to make. Uh, There's clear indication inside the Scripture that it did take them several months to get there because even the word that is used when it says they showed up and they visited The baby, they didn't say baby like an infant, they said baby like a child, a different word was used, meaning it was several months later, Jesus had grown up a little bit by the time they showed up. Maybe he was babbling a little bit or toddling about the house where he was staying. That's how long it took the Magi to get there. The Magi had to reorient their lives in order to make a journey of that length. They looked at their schedule and it had, you know, stargazing convention and lunch with Sam and whatever else. And they said, you know, we're just going to cancel those things because something more important has come up. And they went on this journey. They reoriented their lives and they they came to Christ. And then once they got there, what did they do? Well, they bowed before him. It says in, in verses 10 and 11, of chapter 2, when they showed up, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Magi falling down is a picture of of bowing low, of of saying, You are more important than me. Just in their Even in their posture, they they put the, the child Jesus above them because of who he was. He was Christ, the promised one. They bowed before him. They they worshiped him. Now, we don't know what they did. they probably sang we three kings. I'm just guessing, but I don't know what all they did, but they, they bowed before him. And, and it was this picture of worship. And then their worship continued, not only with bowing before him, but placing things before him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, what what do those things represent? There's some symbols in those things, and we could talk about that at a later time. But I, for this message today, I want us just to think about the value of those things. Gold and frankincense and myrrh were expensive gifts. They were giving their offering right there to Jesus. What did it look like for them to, with haste, come and bring him laud? They they recognized the revelation. They reoriented their lives and they bowed before him. Now, friends, this is a picture for us. Do we recognize his revelation? We've talked today about how Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God. Whether that is old news or new news for you, it is good news for all of us. Will we recognize that? Will we understand that Jesus is our hope? Our hope to defeat the darkness, our our hope to bring righteousness upon the earth, our hope to bring salvation to our lives. Will we understand that? Do we recognize that? And once we recognize it, are we willing to reorient our lives? I mean, the Magi are are traveling great distance in order to come. If, If we recognize the greatness of Jesus, it will impact our lives. It will change our calendar. Priority given to to reading the Word of God, priority given to prayer, priority given to to gathering with God's people and and worshiping Him or gathering in small groups. Those those things become critical and important. We reorient our lives. It's a part of our response in haste, quickly, coming to worship Him. When we bow before Him, we lift His Word up and lay our lives before it? When we reorient underneath it and, and live in obedience to the direction that God calls us to go? Will we worship Him by, by giving of the material possessions that we have, not because we can pay God off, but because He's worthy of our offerings? Will it show up in generosity to others? Will it show up in generosity to the work of God around the world and through the local church? So what does it look like for us to haste, haste, bring Him laud? I think we see a picture of it with the wise men. Friends, this, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste, bring him law, the babe, the son of Mary. Father God, we are thankful for the opportunity that you have given us to worship you today. Thank you for this great truth inside of your word. and Father, thank you for the reminder inside of this song that we can can worship you, that we can reorient our lives around the reality of who you are and that we can bow ourselves low as we lift you high. Father, thank you for the gift of life that you have given to us through Jesus, the promised one of God. Father, may each heart in this room be trusting in him and recognizing the revelation that you have given to us today in faith. Father, may we all now follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.